I hope you're enjoying Vision Month. I know many people are. Many people have thanked me for just, let's be talking about vision and where we're going again. I know when the walls close in and the pressure can feel like it's coming on, man, that's when we need vision more than ever. And I'm, I'm loving our new church vision. I'm loving what it's doing in people's lives. I'm loving that people are grabbing it as their own vision. To be a people pursuing the way of Jesus and playing our part in his story. I love that that's been exciting people to, to press into God and grow in their relationship. I know it's been exciting people to discover their purpose. And uh, that's exactly what I hoped it would do, that it would you know, help us put Jesus first again in our lives. And that it would just really like bring that focus for living with him and living for him uh, in our lives and everything that we do. And we've been talking about values of visions, where we're going. I said this last week, then values are how we get there. If our vision is our why, then our values are our how. They act like riverbanks to sort of guide the flow of the spirit among us as a community. And last week we talked about our first value, love. And if you missed that, you can catch up online. But love, love is what God measures us by. Love is what he wants to do in our lives. Love is what he wants to form in our lives. And we know that all of the law and the prophets can be summed up by love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, body and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And so we want to be people of love. We want to make decisions in our community that are guided by the value. What would love do? The love that Jesus models to us. And we talked about how to practice that love last week and how to be growing in that love, which was fantastic. This week, we're going to talk about our second value, which is this. It's the gospel and mission. Our second value, the gospel and mission. Let's start in the scriptures here in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Romans 1, verse 16. Paul wrote this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greeks. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Because as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Don't you love that? I'm not ashamed by the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Today, my aim is to get us on the same page about the gospel of Jesus and about the mission of God and about how this should guide us in our lives personally and in our life of our church. I want to shape our imagination for what it means to be a part of the gospel story and a part of the mission of God, because all of us are supposed to be a part of it. And so uh, I, that's what we're going to explore. What does the gospel mean? What does salvation mean? What does God's mission mean? The, the early church was shaped by a gospel culture, and we want to be shaped as curate by a gospel culture too. But here's the thing, what you think the gospel and the mission of God is might not be what God thinks that we can often be products of our own part in church history or of our own culture. And so today I want us to take a little zoom out and go, what we think of as gospel, what we think of as salvation, what we think of as the mission of God, is that what God thinks? 
Because as I say, we're a church that's going to value the gospel and mission. Some people out there are probably thinking, that's awesome. We need more altar calls. We need to see more people raising their hand. And you'd be thinking that. Other people will maybe thinking about crusades and revivals or their ideas of what those things uh, look like. Some people might be thinking, that's right, we're all about the mission. We've got to get out there and serve the poor or send some more missionaries overseas. Other people, I don't know, you might be thinking, that means, yeah, we need to get out there and walk down the streets and just start giving out prophetic words and offering to pray for random people. I don't know, but we're probably all thinking different things about what we think of as a church committed to the gospel and mission. So I want us to get on the same page today. Look, we face many challenges just as a church personally, but I know talking with pastor friends throughout uh, all different sort of places that we face these common uh, challenges as a church. There's some of the common challenges we face so that there can be people who turn up to our gatherings and in a moment where prayer is offered or uh, they're given the opportunity to say yes to Jesus, they say yes, but they never turn back up. That's a challenge, right? That, that there's converts, so to speak, who never come back. There's um, a challenge we face is that there are people who claim to be Christians and who claim to be saved by grace, but they don't live lives to honor God. They, they, they really use grace as a license to live however they want. Where's the challenge that we see more conversion in churches than we see transformation? That we, say, we see more people say yes in altar calls than we say, see people say yes in baptism. That there's more people in the church than there are actually living for God in that sense. And um, these create lots of challenges. And I see it all of the time. I see it on social media. You know, church posts, oh, we saw 10,000 people come to Jesus this year, but the church is only 500 people. That's a, that's a problem. That's not, there's something great about that, but surely that would cause us to wrestle with some things and ask some questions. And I, I guess I want to propose today, what if, What's flawed about the way we see gospel and mission? What's, what's flawed about it? Um, and, and, and how would God see it? Uh, how, what's, what's wrong? Is something wrong with the way we're doing it, with the way we're approaching it? Are we missing the mark somewhere? Have we lost something theologically? Are we, are we not getting something? Um, because there's a quote that says your system is perfectly designed to yield the results you were getting. Your system is perfectly designed to yield the results you're getting. So if there's something wrong with the system, and I, hopefully you get what I'm saying, there's something not quite right about how we see the mission of God. Well, something, it's the system we've designed. It's the way we're looking at it. And so maybe we need to look at these things a bit different. What if somewhere in the last 200 years, the definition of gospel and of salvation and therefore, God's idea of mission has changed in the church. What if the way we think about it is not the way church history has looked at it for 1900 years? What if when we hear the words gospel and salvation and mission, what if what we think they mean are not what Jesus thought they mean? What if they're not what the scriptures thought they mean? What if they're not what Peter or Paul thought they mean when he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? What if what we think the gospel is is not what Paul thought the gospel was? And what if we're not actually on the side of church history? What if the orthodox way of looking at this through the centuries is not the way we're looking at it? I want to ask that question to us today. What is the gospel? 
What would be your answer to that question? What's the good news? Gospel just means good news. What is the good news according to the scripture? What is salvation? And what is the mission of God? I don't know what the answers are that you're thinking of, but uh, I'd imagine most people would summarize something like the gospel of, uh, uh, is something like God loves me. He sent his son to die for me and by his grace and through faith, I am saved and have eternal life. Maybe you would quote the four spiritual laws, which uh, were, you know, were a big deal over the last sort of 50 years or 80 years. God loves you and created you to know him personally is the first. The second spiritual law is uh, um, man is sinful and separated from God and we cannot know him or his love. Number three, Jesus Christ is God's only provision for man's sin. Through him alone, we can know him personally and his love. And number four, we must individually receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Then we can know him personally and his love. And I want to approach this subject as humbly as I possibly can, because I know many people have come to know Jesus through a modern approach to the gospel and salvation and mission. And, and that's awesome. It's amazing that God can use anything. But we need to still peel back the layers and go, are we seeing this as God sees it? Because what if we're not just arguing about semantics, but what if the way we see it, what if the way do we describe it and we define it is actually shaping a culture that is making it harder to make disciples, not easier to make disciples? What if this isn't just semantics? What if it, everything's actually getting lost in translation? Um, because this, we must see it differently. We must see it differently. I, ho I hope you're following along with me. Dallas Willard uh, actually discussed this reduction of gospel. Just, we've, we've, we've sort of turned the, the gospel, the idea of gospel, just into the plan of salvation. He, he, talk, he talked about this reduction um, and, and that we've reduced, we've reduced the gospel to just being God's plan to save me. And we've reduced uh, God's plan to save me to just really my individual forgiveness of sins. And he claims that it's like this is the gospel of sin management is what Dallas Willard, Dallas Willard calls it. He said we must be emphasized, what must be emphasized in all of this is the difference between trusting Christ, the real person Jesus, with all that naturally involves, versus trusting some arrangement for sin remission set up through him, trusting Jesus' role only as a guilt remover. Gospels of sin management presume a Christ with no serious work other than redeeming humankind. And they foster vampire Christians who only want a little blood for their sins, but nothing more to do with Jesus until heaven. This is the perspective of the gospel that leads people to wonder why I would give my life to Christ now when I could just give it to him on my deathbed because what has been overemphasized as the good news is that you can go to heaven and get forgiven. But what I'm going to show us today is that this is completely selling short what the gospel meant and what Jesus and what Peter and what Paul and what the New Testament meant by the gospel of Jesus. I've heard some theologians say that if you want to know what the gospel is, I need at least an hour of your time. And that 
because it's a story that needs to be told? And is it possible that we've reduced it to something we can share in two minutes at the end of our church gatherings as an altar call and therefore reduced it to something it's not, just an expediency to try and get people to make decisions in a moment? And I'm not saying decisions aren't important. Decisions are very important. But if we don't understand what we're actually deciding, if we don't understand what the gospel truly is, we might be um, continuing to make more of an issue for followers of Jesus rather than help solve the problem. What, what, many, what happens in many churches and in our church too is that we do these altar calls and in that we shape what people think is the gospel and I think we're selling it short. N.T. Wright said this, I'm perfectly comfortable with what people normally mean when they say the gospel. I just don't think it is what Paul means. In other words, I'm not denying that the usual meanings are things that people ought to say, preach about, to believe. I simply wouldn't use the word gospel to denote those things. Thanks, N.T. Wright. The gospel has become the plan of salvation in most Christians' minds. And the plan of salvation has been reduced to individual forgiveness of sins. And don't get me wrong, the plan of salvation matters. It's significant. It's true, God wants to save you, but it's way more than forgiveness of sins. And it, but here's the thing, it's a part of the gospel. It's not the gospel. And if we think of salvation and the gospel as the same thing, this, the gospel is the power unto salvation, but salvation sits in the context of the gospel. What has happened is that we've created a salvation culture and mistakenly assumed it is a gospel culture. And this is important for us to recognize because if we're going to value the gospel and mission of God, what I want you to know is that means valuing more than just God's plan of salvation. It's bigger than that. And we'll, we'll talk about what that means. Referring to a gospel of salvation, but not transformation. This was said. This kind of gospel can deconstruct a local church. And I would finger the issue as, as, on, as one of, if not, um, if not the origins of the demise of the church in Western European cultures. This quest for most pastors and churches is to get that group of the decided on the road to discipled. But the challenges are many. And it all begins with the gospel those people responded to in the first place. I'm with the many, and this is Scott McKnight writing, a great theologian, I'm with the many who think such a gospel actually deconstructs the church because it trades so deeply in both individualism and personal happiness. I'm also with the many who know this gospel is divorced from the entire history of the church and shoulders responsibility for diminishing the fullness of the story of the Bible and the gospel that emerged into the Nicene Creed. The gospel is the story of God and humanity finding its fulfillment in Jesus. This is what we need to understand. The gospel is not a four-step plan to salvation. The gospel is the story of Jesus fulfilling the story of Israel and humanity and us finding our place in that story. The story of Jesus inside this context is the good news. Israel is God's answer to Eden. And Jesus is the fulfillment of Eden and Israel. It is the story, the whole story of Jesus is 
the gospel, not just how he offers salvation. Hopefully understanding me. I'm going to show you this in the scriptures in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 1. This is probably one of the first ever summaries. 1 Corinthians is a very early letter uh, as far as all of the New Testament letters go. 1 Corinthians 15 is probably one of our earliest summaries of the gospel of Jesus. And here's what it says. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you were being saved. Do you hear that? The gospel is more than just by which you're being saved. It's by which you, it's what you received, it's in what you stand, and it's by what you're being saved. And if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, what word? The good news word, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received. So here's his like, I gave you the gospel that I got. And so here's what he says, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and that is Peter and then to the 12 and he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all of the apostles. Can you hear it? Peter's, uh, Paul's saying, here's the gospel that I preached to you. Hold on to it. This is the gospel you received. This is the gospel which you can continue to live in and stand firm in. Here's what it is. That Jesus Christ died, that Jesus Christ was buried, that Jesus Christ was raised, and that Jesus Christ appeared. It's a summary of the story of Jesus. And so I want to ask, what does it mean to be committed to the gospel of Jesus and the mission of God? Well, to be committed to the gospel of Jesus is to be committed to the whole story of God. It's to be people of his story. It's to become people immersed in the story. Whereas what we're often selling people in altar calls is that if you say a prayer, you can receive forgiveness from God and salvation in this moment. We're selling people a quick transaction to salvation. But that's not what they preached in this book. We do, in the way we sell it to people, they don't even need to know the Old Testament. They don't even need to know the stories of Jesus all they need to know is the cross of Jesus. But the gospel is the story of Jesus, summarized that he died, that he was buried, that he raised, and that he appeared. And so as we want, if we want to be people of the gospel, what I'm saying is that we need to become people of this story. We need to become people of the story of Jesus as it is the story of the fulfillment of the story of Israel. It's good news because it's the fulfillment of the story of the Old Testament. That's why it's called good news. And it's good news to our lives because it's the fulfillment of our story too, as our story gets wrapped up in his story. So how do we be people of the gospel? We need to be people of his story. We need to be people whose lives are wrapped up in the fullness of the life of Christ, that know it, that embrace it, that live in it, that embody this story. That's what it means to be people of the gospel. Here, I, I, here's another quote. I would contend that there is no such thing as gospeling that does not include the summons to respond in faith, repentance, and baptism. 
faith's the big idea with repentance and baptisms as manifestations of that faith. Gospeling declares that Jesus is the rightful Lord because that's what the story tells us. Gospeling summons people to turn from their idols, to worship and live under the Lord who saves. And gospeling actually puts us in the co-mediating and co-ruling tasks under our Lord Jesus. But when we reduce the gospel to only personal salvation, as many attempted to do, and as many of us have been taught to do inadvertently, we tear the fabric out of the story of the Bible and we cease even needing the Bible. And so that is not the gospel. God wants people saved, don't get me wrong, but saved isn't an exchange. Saved isn't just the forgiveness of sins. Saved is the forgiveness is the entry into the saved life that was saved into something. Our life of salvation is a life lived under the rule of God, not just a prayer prayed. It's a life wrapped up in his story. And that's why we want to play our part in his story, because that's the whole idea of our vision, that we'd be caught up, that we'd be playing our part in his big story, his gospel. That's why the, the theological term that's been around for centuries is missio day. It's his mission is what it means. It's the mission of God, that the church doesn't have a mission, the church gets to play its part and is the central part to play in God's mission. We partner with him. It's his thing. So other than becoming people of the story, how else can we become people committed to gospel and mission? Well, firstly, what I want you to see is that the mission of God is not just because this is what people think. I can only play my purpose in this world when I'm evangelizing, when I'm helping people get saved, as we say. And so people, many people, many people I know live their lives with a sense of like either failure or that they're not on purpose because you're not seeing your workmate saved or you're not seeing your friends saved. And surely we want to see people come into salvation life with God. There's no doubt about it. We absolutely do. That is a highly motivated thing for us, for our church. That's what God wants to motivate us. But the mission of God's bigger than just that. There's more wrapped around it than just seeing people saved. God's at work through his gospel, redeeming the whole world to Christ, Ephesians tells us, that he's redeeming all things under his rule. And so what I want you to see is that you can play a part in the mission of God every day when you're a part of God's redeeming work. It doesn't mean we should ignore seeing people come into salvation life with God, embracing the gospel story in their lives. But it, it means that we should also understand that every time that we're redeeming things, that we're playing our part in his larger story like that, that we're actually playing our part in his mission too. Hopefully that's making sense. So I want to finish by talking about two tensions and five words that hopefully are going to help shape our imagination about how we live in this gospel story, about how we be people of the gospel, how we be people of the mission of God individually and also collectively. The first tension is this. It's that there's a tension between the scattered and gathered expression of the church. And we need to understand that playing our part in the gospel and mission of God is about embracing our scattered 
uh, approach, that's our life that we live, and it's also about embracing our gathered approach, that the church gathers, we are the church, we gather, we're called to gather and worship the Lord and encourage one another and a few other things, and we're also called to scatter and go and work and go and raise our families and, uh, and do those things unto the Lord as well. And so we need to understand living in this mission life, this gospel life, is about the tension, it's about living in this flow of the gathered and scattered. Not either or, but both. The second tension that we need to um, embrace if we're going to live in the mission of God is the tension between the pacifist and the activist. That both are, are expressions of how we're supposed to live out the gospel and mission of God. The, the pacifist is, is sort of like looks at the world and goes, oh, I'm not going to go try change the world. What I'm going to do is I'm going to create an alternative world uh, in my life as a rule under God, as an example or an oasis to the world. And there's no doubt that the church is supposed to have a pacifist outlook where rather than trying to always charge the halls of parliament and these things might get me in trouble uh, right now, but it's hear what I'm saying that that sometimes we're not supposed to be out there ch changing the world. Sometimes we're supposed to be the world changed. That as the church, we're supposed to be this oasis amongst the lake of fire. That when people come into it, they find something quite different to the world. And certainly some church movements have taken this so extreme that they don't engage in politics or anything at all. The Quakers, the Anabaptists, that would be like examples of an extreme pacifist uh, perspective. But then there's the other perspective, which is the activist which is about being engaged in the reshaping of our cultures. C.S. Lewis taught that socialism was horrible for humanity. Chesterton thought that Christianity was good for the public sphere because it was sane. And Augustine taught that war was necessary sometimes to defend against evil. And so there's sort of like these... Um, the, these, these other perspectives of being activists in the world. I, I came across this quote from a, a great activist. He said, I've come to realize that culture does matter. Not all cultures are equal. That Christian culture has produced the highest levels of freedom and prosperity and the lowest levels of corruption and oppression in the world. And that transforming culture is a laudable and worthwhile goal. Augustine in his great book, The City of God, very old, very big, very hard, hard to read book, but he talks about how even though as we try to create a Christian culture in our wider culture, it's imperfect, of course it is, it can't be perfect because we're not perfect, it's still better than the alternatives. And so as we try to figure out what living the mission of God looks like, it actually looks like holding the tension between as a church we're supposed to be pacifists creating an alternative oasis of transformed lives, of health, of love, this type of thing, absolutely. But we're also called to be activists too and uh, do play our part in reshaping the spheres that God has given us influence under his rule. And hopefully that's making sense, that we play our part gathered and scattered, but we also need to think about this activist and pacifist tension too. I could say more about that, but I won't because um, we're running out of time here. And then I just want to give us five words, and hopefully these will just be quick to hopefully shape our imagination about how to live out this gathered, scattered, uh, pacifist, activist tension as we be gospel and mission people. The first word is this, is transformation. See, becoming Christ-like is the beginning place of playing our part in God's mission. 
that actually every time you spend with God, every spiritual practice you engage in is actually a way when it's got Jesus as the center and not ourselves as the center. Sometimes spiritual practices can become that way. But when Jesus is the center, when it's all under the umbrella of worship unto him, as we are transformed, know that we are actually like a soldier in training, that that is part of the mission of God, that we are like someone going to school and training for something. We're becoming someone that God can increasingly use. In uh, Timothy, it talks about if you would keep yourself pure, that you would be a special utensil available for God's special purposes. And so as we are transformed, as we grow in Christ, as we grow in the Lord, we are that's part of how we engage in the mission of God. The second word I want to give you is incarnation. Incarnation. It's about being among, not just visiting. John 1.14 says, So the word became human, speaking of Jesus, and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. We have an example in the gospel and the mission of God of Jesus coming among us. And so we actually must live among other people who don't who aren't just followers of Jesus if we are going to be people engaged in the gospel and mission we must live among um people who are poor if we're truly going to help people who are poor. We can't just visit from our wealthy suburb and just come and come out. Actually, part of being involved in the mission of God is about embodying, is about incarnating, is about being among those things. And so we need to foster relationships and be a part of things. Uh, hopefully that's making sense to us. The third word is this, is relevance. Relevance can be like a hot topic word, but really what I mean by relevance in this context is that we need to meet actual need in the world that's good news when it actually solves bad news in people's lives. And so relevance, we need to meet actual need as people and as a church. Luke 4 verse 18, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Jesus read this out when he started his ministry. For he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim the captives will be released, the blind will see, and the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Jesus came and met real need in his, uh, in his ministry, and his good news story. And so uh, we want to be people who are relevant by meeting the real needs in the lives of those around us. Every day we go to work, people have the real need to be encouraged. People have the real need to be noticed. People have the real need to be appreciated. Uh, people have the real need to be cared for. And so we can play our part in the mission of God just by meeting the real needs in the lives of those around us. The, the fourth word is reshaping. This is a way we can think about things, especially as we elevate an influence in our different spheres. Uh, whether it be politics or education or whether it be uh, social services or whether it be healthcare or whether it be media or arts or creativity, whatever sphere you find yourself in, we can engage in the work of reshaping that at an individual level, certainly like sin and brokenness can exist, but at a corporate level, this brokenness can exist too. And it can affect the whole systems of things in society and businesses and teams and classrooms and schools and in offices. And so we can become people who reshape those within the sphere of our influence under the rule of God by bringing godly principles, by bringing a godly spirit, by bringing prayer to those places. We can be involved in doing it in an alternative way. This is the reshaping work. And the last word is this, is witness that we are witnesses. We are witnesses to God's work, past and present, to those around us. 
our lives and our words get an opportunity to be a witness, to be a witness. So that's another way we can shape, uh, think about these things. I think the five helpful words, transformation, incarnation, relevance, reshaping and witness. Alan Hirsch said this, so a working definition of a missional church is a community of God's people, that's you and me, that defines itself and organizes its life around its real purpose of being an agent of God's mission to the world. In other words, the church's true and authentic organizing principle is mission. When the church is, in, uh, when the church is on mission, it's the true church. The church itself, not only a product of that mission, but is obligated and destined to extend it by whatever means is possible. The mission of God flows directly through every believer in every community of faith that adheres to Jesus. To obstruct this is to block God's purposes in and through God's people. Look, one of the tensions we've found ourselves in over the years is that people have wanted the church to organize around them. That people that have been mature Christians have wanted the church to be more centered around them, meeting their needs, preaching about things that help them the most. And uh, this is one of these great tensions that church finds itself in because the church exists not just for those who are in it, but for those who are not yet in it. That's what it means to be committed to the gospel and to the mission. And so we're, we're summarizing this value like this. We believe that God is making all things new through the power of his kingdom. We are called and committed to a life of mission here and now. Playing our part in God's redemptive story, we offer up our whole lives and vocations as a crucial part of outworking his mission. We want everyone to have a chance to hear the good news of Jesus and his kingdom in a way they can understand from someone they can trust and with a power that's transformational. We want the gospel and mission to be the, one of the values we filter our decisions in individually and as a community. God wants all people to live under his rule, in his good news story, and so do we, because that's salvation. That's living the good news story. And I want to finish with a summary uh, by, from C.S. Lewis, like taking his sort of metaphors uh, out of um, the Chronicles of Narnia for how could we sum up the gospel if we're to use this metaphor. We're going to finish with this. Uh, it says, watch the lion roam. Watch the lion die on a stone table. Watch the stone table crack with new creation powers. Listen to the lion's roar. Trust the lion. Love the lion. Live for the lion. The gospel and God's mission, it's the good news of the Jesus story being everything that fulfills the human story. And we want to be people of that story, living in that story, embracing that story, and finding ways to live out that story collectively and individually in our world in such a way that we would be playing our part in God's redemptive story. Do we want to see people come to know Jesus? Absolutely. But what we want by, by know Jesus, we mean more than just saying a prayer and accepting a transaction. We mean people becoming a part of Jesus' story. 
And so hopefully this has made sense to everyone. Know that we are all here on purpose, that we all have you know, God's mission to be a part of. We all have a part to play in it. And I hope that some of these words, as you reflect on them, give you an idea or give you some inspiration through the Holy Spirit of what that might look like in your daily life, right where you are right now. Um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your love. God, thank you for your story. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that he came, that he lived, that he was an example to us. Thank you that he died and was raised and that he appeared and that he ascended and that you are with us now through your Holy Spirit. God, we want to be people of your story. Would you guide us as we be a community guided by this value? Would you guide us individually as we get guided by this value? And, uh, and Lord, thank you. Thank you for letting us be a part of your story. In Jesus' name, amen.